knowing about Ukraine is crucial. It's a part of a basic um, understanding, at least in the realm of European studies. You have to be very well aware of how Ukraine functions as a society. And if you're an urbanist, you have to know at least some of the understanding, you have to some, some understanding about how Ukrainian municipalities, cities and um, are growing and are changing. That's right, and we will try to contribute to this understanding in today's episode. Hi, welcome back to the Cities Reimagined podcast. I'm a voice of choice, Johannes Rieler, and this is episode 7, Reimagining Urbanism in Post-War Ukraine. I hope you're all doing well. It is the end of the year and to me it seems like uh, the late summer here in Austria just disappeared into a very harsh winter with minus 11 degrees this morning in Vienna today. I hope you can look back at the meaningful year whatever that means for you. I certainly can. I could work and talk to so many people pushing the envelope on urbanism on the show and offline. I also had the opportunity to travel a lot and get to know so many places and people who are doing really cool things and uh, connect to those people around the planet and also to, yeah, not least, I could spend some really good time with my loved ones and connect to friends and colleagues in a meaningful way. And not least, I could experiment with this new project called Cities Reimagined. Cities Reimagined will take a short break from here over the holiday season and will be back in January with the remaining episodes of season one. There has been also so much knowledge collected already in the episode so far that I would love to use it also outside of the pure podcast audio, if you will. And I'm eyeing with the option of... Uh, a publication summarizing each episode in written form and drawing some conclusions and key messages. But since at the moment Cities Reimagined is running my free time on my personal budget, I'm a bit limited on how to go about that idea. And if you have some ideas on how to finance it and uh, how to spend time on it, uh, please get in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. In the meantime, I luckily found a way to transcribe each episode for uh, yeah, very affordable costs. I will also publish this trans transcript in one way or the other, maybe a Medium account or something else. But the first non-podcast publication will be featured in a publication by Driving Urban Transitions on regenerative neighborhoods. And I will be editing a conversation I had with uh, Gerfried Ambosch on urban wildlife habitats uh, which will be featured in this booklet. If you are enjoying the content of Cities Reimagined, smash the like button, rate and review the show or leave a comment and a like on LinkedIn or other social media channels to help others find it. But enough on the monologue this week, let's get to it. Let's get to the topic of today, and that is reimagining urbanism in post-war Ukraine. Yeah, 
Yeah, over the years I had the chances of uh, working with colleagues in and from Ukraine, join and talk at a number of UNESCO workshops dedicated on sustainable development practices for urban heritage, which was organized partly by uh, Ukrainian ministries, but took place mainly online because of COVID. And I became very interested in the history and the current political affairs of Ukraine and started reading into it. So mainly I read the work of Anna Reed and Timothy Snyder, which are two authors I would highly recommend to you. I leave the links to their works in the show notes, so you have it ready if you want to read further into that. I also had the chance to go to Kiev in early January 2019, just days before Orthodox Christmas celebrations. It was very cold in the city and it was snowing and there was a lot of snow, um, a layer of snow over the city. That Nidmo River, uh, which flows through the heart of Kiev, uh, had patches of ice forming on the surface and the city had a very quiet feel to it as the snow muffled all the sounds of the traffic and created a certain sense of stillness and at the same time you could realize or recognize that you arrived in the capital where parts of the land of the country are occupied by an aggressor by the Russian Federation. There were posters of fallen soldiers and others who lost their lives in the east of the country and during the events of uh, the Maidan Square in the year 2014. Um, and these posters reminded that things are not that calm in the country. In the public spaces, there were signs and communications that expressed a deep-seated desire for change and a brighter future of Ukraine. And walking the streets, searching for a restaurant, actually, I found myself in an inner courtyard in which Ukrainian soldiers had their standby position. So I left Kiev after the weekend with an impression of a beautiful and cold city which brings together the historic Orthodox cathedrals, the Soviet-era structures and modern skyscrapers, but foremost that this country is in a military conflict, which was mainly not perceived as such at that time in the West and parts of Europe. In February 2022, what for many from outside of Ukraine, thought as unthinkable happened, a large-scale military attack and occupation of Ukrainian land by the Russian Federation. And now in November 2024, an end to this war in Ukraine is not yet in sight. Thousands of civilian Ukrainians were killed, entire cities were put to rubble and 1.4 million homes were destroyed or damaged. The infrastructure and the historic Monuments are destroyed each day. But there's also increased debate and talks about rebuilding those Ukrainian cities. And I had a number of questions on that, on rebuilding Ukrainian cities. And over the last months, I came across the work of Alexander Anisimov on rebuilding Ukrainian cities numerous times. He's a spatial planner and uh, territorial governance researcher and consultant with a focus on science policy interface with a rich experience actually in the NGO sector in Ukraine as well. He published really interesting stuff on matters on rebuilding Ukrainian cities, including affordable housing and 
sustainable land use that I had to invite him on the show and he luckily agreed to have a conversation with me. So here is my conversation with Alexander Anisimov on reimagining urbanism in post-war Ukraine. Hi, Alexander. It's so nice Hello, to have Johannes. you. It's so Hi. nice to have you on uh, Cities Reimagined. How are you doing? Well, it's uh, maybe already late autumn in Ukraine, but seems fine. Thank you. Yeah. You're now in... Where, where are you based at the moment? Are you in, in Helsinki or? Um, I'm moving, but uh, most of the time I'm based in Lviv. That's Western Ukraine, uh, historic city in, in the core of Western Ukraine. Is that the town you, you grew up in? No, I moved here and I moved here when I tried to get a new job. Well, I, I got the new job, but uh, it was a bit of an experiment because I've never thought of moving anywhere uh, from Kiev before. Um, although, well, I was nothing like I was completely attached to the city, but it was not like, what would you do in Ukraine? Not being in Kiev, in a sense, was also kind of a question for me. Um, but I moved here to work um, in a municipality as a specialist in urban infrastructure. <laughs> So I stayed here, uh, then the war broke out. Um, so I worked there further for a few months, but then I thought, well, there are urgent issues we have to tackle. Um, so I moved a little bit to the NGO sector and started working on research and housing and land use. All right, so you're, you're moving between, so you're now in Ukraine at this moment. Yes, at the moment, yes. I have to say, people will not see that, but I see it. Uh, it's very confusing because you have a uh, a background of Aalto University uh, uh, near Helsinki, right? Uh, so I, I had in mind that you're sitting in Finland right now. Yeah, this is a specifically designed to be confusing. <laughs> very good. Uh, but how did you how how did you become interested in urbanism or urban planning or urban studies in the first place? You grew up in Kiev. How what? How was it? How was it growing up there, and what what triggered your interest in in this messy stuff called cities? Well, I think Kiev was a more or less well organized cities in mid two thousands, um, so it inherited some of the good and bad Soviet planning solutions, but also pre Soviet uh, grid networks. So the center of the city is pretty walkable, and uh, there is a lot of infrastructure for cultural. Activities and heritage, so it was not felt like there was a specific, you know, difference between Kiev and other cities across across Central Europe. I think it was pretty much similar in a way, also better. It had a lot of greenery compared to many cities. Um, then when I studied political science as my bachelor's uh, degree, so I started to focus on public space. I think it was just a fancy thing to do at the moment. So people started to look something something urban. Um, and I thought about, I read André Lefebvre and I thought about, well, how do we work on um, polit politics of public space? How does that public space uh, is created? How the public space is created actually? Who are the actors? Who are the political forces behind the curtains or what are the other institutions um, basically involved in this creation of public space and who does it serve? And uh, from then on, I somehow started working on several urban design uh, 
projects of smaller scale uh, with an NGO called uh, Agents of Change. Uh, it's a Kyiv-based NGO. And uh, we were trying to utilize some of the European analytical frameworks for public space analysis, for analysis of you know, quality of life, something that people well know about uh, this methodology of Jan Gale and his team. So some of the different aspects of those approaches that became popular, I think, in 2010s uh, were also on the rise in Kyiv, not very much institutionalized in the conversations with the municipality or municipal authorities, but at least beginning to be popular among you know, professionals and people just engaged in, in this kind of urban thinking uh, who had some free time or had been engaged in voluntary activities and then started to professionalize it a little bit. Cool. It seems like uh, public space is a uh, is a topic which where many find their first interest in cities or urbanism. And how did you you're now working more on the on the spatial planning governance side of things, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? So there are several directions that I unfortunately have to work on at the same moment, but I think I will move towards something, uh, one of those. Um, and in a sense, there are three directions um, right now, but they are very much attached to the plans of establishing um, a research center for land and housing studies um, within the system of Kharkiv School of Architecture. But I can... From the perspective of my master studies, I started to look at the um, in-depth understanding of a planning system, but from the governance perspective, not from the spatial planning itself, so not from the regulations or from some kind of uh, you know effects of spatial planning as such, but more of the you know level of governance and land use planning and um, institutional change, which was which also a thing that fascinates me, and it's very hard to explain in the conditions where institutions are so weak and. Um, it's hard to define and say, as you, in Ukraine they are. Um, but um, so I combined my previous understanding from political science of things related to political theory, theory of understanding, um, well, basically how societies function and uh, societies function on the level of, you know, political society. So if it's a community, how does it organize itself? How does it decide for what are the best, better rules of governance or what are the ideas it wants to follow or how the things are then you know, made into action. So put on paper and then created as, a, as an institution of enforcement. And those things from my background, they, they allowed me maybe to get a, a different angle on the spatial planning um, because as such, I'm also concerned about some kind of political issues, but I'm really interested in the space as a concept or in space as a concept and space as a, as a realm, I'd say. So yes, this is my focus. So the governance part focused with, or um, combined with the governance part and combined with the land use uh, understanding. I think this is one of the most powerful tools uh, of, um, on the one hand, understanding how cities develop, on the other hand, influencing the future development of those cities, because the issues of how do you define those rules for land use and how you make those rules work are for me, you know, completely crucial. So that the underlying um, system of the, all of the other systems that is built uh, upon it. Yes, and this this topic is also how I uh, 
got aware of your work because I saw on LinkedIn uh, that you wrote some articles and uh, posts on regulation governance behind uh, what is needed in that regard behind rebuilding Ukrainian cities. Um, so I'm very happy that we have this have a chance for this conversation here today. Uh, for me, it's very difficult, honestly, personally, to draft a question on um, how somebody must feel with uh, yeah, living in Ukraine and having having the war in, uh, in front of the doorstep. Um, how are you holding up, and how is this? How is this personally? How can you can you describe that? I'd say um, it felt like a fall of the world uh, in the first day or two. So it it in a sense felt that reality does not exist anymore because the material things were no longer um well, well, well they, they could it seemed they couldn't hold like um all of the physical things couldn't be destroyed any second so they were on the one hand existing like this computer or the mouse or the table but on the other hand they were possible that they would be taken from you or destroyed by rockets or whatever so in sense it was a bit of a completely redefined feeling of, of the physical world around me, but also a lot of stress that was uh, mobilizing. So it was a, a huge desire to do something. Uh, it also felt like a physical need to be engaged in things, although I don't have military training and I couldn't be very uh, helpful apart from the humanitarian side of the things. So yeah, we, we everybody tried to be as much of uh, useful they could. So it was a huge mobilization of the society itself. Um, it still continues, um, but there was also a lot of fear um, and it's a human fear of death or injury or pain. Um, and I think people were super stressed about it. And one of the thoughts that I um, had in these first days was that you know, Russia is in a sense taking time from us because when people are so stressed, when people cannot plan, people cannot think ahead, they become obsessed with their, you know, immediate security and they're basically cut off from thinking. So they're cut off from imagining, they're cut off from discussing, you know, this, all of the issues about deliberation, future, they're non-relevant. And basically you cannot build a society on the society that just, you know, keeps itself secure. You have to imagine something, you have to plan. And uh, that that feeling about Russia taking time from us was a very real one. So it was like a frozen time um, of fear and stress and mobilization, but, uh, but still a frozen one. You could not kind of progress in any direction. You were just doing things that had to be done. Yeah, and you, you in your work, I know that you... Uh, you're advocating for, yeah, still in this time where, um, how to put it, in time of survival or in this in these times of war, you're advocating for changing the paradigms of how Ukrainian cities are built and uh, hopefully rebuilt. Um, what are the problems and challenges in that regard? How would you, how do they differ from other post-Soviet cities? What would you say? Well, I think none of the cities are any longer post-Soviet in a sense. So um, just to work on this field of, the, of, of defining the problem itself or the, the frame itself, 
um, five years ago, um, my distant colleague uh, published a paper, Three Metals um, something. I just don't recall the whole name, but um, um, Mikhail Gentile, he's a Swedish researcher working in Norwegian university. Um, he basically launched a counterattack on the concept of post-socialist uh, explanatory framework or post-socialist word as concept term. So he, he fought it back in a very good way, a very strong argumentation. Um, he brought together several examples of cities that are still considered by some of the researchers or in some literature for Soviet. And he just tried to link them somehow and it didn't work. So he couldn't find a single characteristic that could link those cities together. And uh, there was a very good framing that he um, counterattacked this, this idea about post-socialism is that it confines the production of knowledge about post-socialism to this constant peripheral condition, because you can now never overcome the um, reproducibility, the relevance of the knowledge you produce about post-socialist cities beyond the post-socialist cities themselves. So in a sense, whatever you talk uh, whatever you tell about post-socialist cities means something only in the framework of other post-socialist conditioned cities and something you can never argue anything about, you know, global south, east, west, north, and so on. So just you're stuck there. And I think we have to go beyond that. It just helps to kind of bring something of an identifier, but what's behind it really? Very hard to define. Is it a is it a matter um, of the term post-socialist, or is it is it? Yes, yes. I, I think, think I think it's just it's just exhausted itself, and uh, it doesn't it it answers the wrong question. I'd say so. If we want to learn something, we should ask different questions. We should we should ask questions about you know the region or the country or the history or or a building or a city or a community. We shouldn't ask a question about post-socialism. Excellent, very good. Um, do you and for for changing the paradigms in in Ukraine, what is what is needed now for, let's say, rebuilding the cities or? Then I would say the concern um, is twofold. So one concern is how do we deliver the promises of deliberative democracy and um, inclusion. Um, in, in the level of the community of uh, what's in Ukraine is also municipality is called the community. So it's a literal translation. So you, you if you live in a municipality, you automatically live in a community. Um, and um, in a sense, how do cities that don't have funds, that don't have capacity, that are, you know, people who work in municipality, they don't have proper funding, they don't have proper salaries, how those municipalities being confined for so many years even after some decentralization efforts have been done in Ukraine, which is a strong reform that's been happening last five, seven years. Um, how does those municipalities actually deliver those promises? Because people are, I guess, over-expecting. Um, and, you know, international community is over-expecting and everybody's thinking, well, we have now this perspective of European accession, European Union accession, now we have to deliver. We have to be, you know, at least as good as some other countries are. And um, I cannot say that we have the foundations for that transition. So on an institutional level, you know, the way the country was ran, 
is way too chaotic in the regional perspective. And uh, municipalities are very different by their capacities and they're very different by their ability to think forward or to mobilize any kind of resources. And they're very dependent on, I would say, local trajectories of how things developed. And those trajectories were, in most cases, not very positive, um, not very forward-looking. So the one question is about the capacity of the local level itself, you know, to build uh, build forward, to, to create the, the, the needed, re kind of engage in the needed reforms on the local level. And then the other side is, in a sense, what is the professional and the state paradigm of how do we do things uh, from the planning perspective, right? How do we think about uh, the quality of life in those communities, in the country? And I think there is also a crisis of ideas on that on that behalf. So although I'm very much of institutionalist perspective thinker, I, I, in this case, I engage in more of a discursive problem. Because I think we have a crisis of imagination on that on that side, and this is a point where comparison is maybe not the best solution, but a very interesting one. Because looking at the destruction that was brought by the Second World War in a lot of European states, um, it was hard to say. It was hard to see any of the countries building back worse. So, in a sense, every of those countries engaged in a huge mobilization of you know, societal resources, institutions, political engagement. They redefined um, social contracts. They created so much of a new institutions that still hold, we can name, you, you name it, NHS in Britain, social pensions in Netherlands, um, movement uh, and workers' rights in Germany, um, housing in Sweden. There are so many institutions built from Second World War designed on the basis of new social imagination of politicians and their, um, well, expert groups that, that supported those politicians to, to think forward. And this is not there in Ukraine. So I very well understand that we are in a sense of, uh, you know, this post-crisis condition. So neoliberalism has fallen, but what's kind of next? So what do we propose for the society and for the you know global economy? Um, and in our case, we cannot, you know, just continue the trajectory. We, we, we will slide into one or the other conditions by definition, something that we're going to have because so many things were destroyed and they will be rebuilt on one conditions or other conditions. And um, one of the perspectives I'm arguing for on this kind of a level of political imagination about cities, about communities, um, is that we actually have to get back to the social state. So the state that provides for its citizens and the idea of uh, deliberative social democracy, I think, mm. um, well, in, maybe in the words of Thomas Piketty, it's a bit of different conditions, but it's a, a, a kind of a, a system that works for the people who invest in that system. And um, there is a strong counter movement on the political side. So we still have to kind of keep the taxes low. We have to keep the... Um, private entrepreneurs and private businesses um, kind of running the economy, running the running it forward, moving it to some kind of a new innovative thinking, blah, blah, blah. However, um, coming back to, well, and how do we keep people in Ukraine then? You know, um, obviously two, 5% of people who engage in this nice uh, jobs related to IT, related to some kind of marketing business, they will stay. 
might might today but and then what we're talking about the other 95 slash 890 of people how do we deliver for those um teachers for those policemen for those building workers how do we create a system that really values their input and this is something behind you know questions of what are the cities we're going to build and very much related to the idea of social housing and you know housing for all and this is excellent and this is um you referred i would like to stick for a second with uh, with this crisis of imagination which you um put forward so strongly um you also mentioned that after the second world war in, in europe there was a lot of let's say social achievements and a lot of uh things all of a sudden were possible which didn't maybe didn't seem possible before but there might also been have been a lot of experimentation right uh, an opening an open mind potentially to improve the social conditions of of people right and then just experimenting with it and and going along with that do you think that this crisis of imagination is is uh in in ukraine is that uh historically is it politically is it are there, are there reasons for that culturally or do you think it's just this um this bigger economic model we are in you you mentioned the neoliberalism that there that new that this notion of neoliberalism um in a way prevents people or institutions to have bolder ideas, visions about the future? Um, what yeah, well, I, will, I will try to answer in two parts. So one part is about the imagination itself. And I think it's very much related to uh, some of the concepts that uh, Mariana Matsukato put forward in regards to um, how do we define the value that the state can provide for the society? So, and thinking about that value is very much um, predefined in Ukraine because the state for so long has been defunding itself. So it has been consistently shrinking, um, well, maybe not consistently, but inconsistently shrinking. Uh, and then it doesn't have its internal um, ambition or capacity to, to, to think about bigger change, to believe that the value and the progress that it can deliver can actually mean something or can be as big as it has to be or as counter uh, intuitive maybe to some people but still providing a lot of social value a lot of public value for the society and that consistent shrinking of public institutions um obviously lent market the hand to think for those institutions so I'm taking one sector, um, and the, the one that I've been working with for some time, although I'm not really an expert in housing. Um, in housing sphere, um, the state as a, well, public uh, entities, they rely on private data. They rely on private advice because they have not built any uh, research uh, capacities and um well, research institutional capacities themselves. So they they systematically rely on what private entities provide for them. And then they do not have any other arguments and they don't have any other 
things on their horizon other than those that were put forward by the private sector. And thus, the only thing that is there in the discourse is only things put forward by the private sector, meaning that you cannot actually engage with public institutions because they are, in a sense, captured uh, or kind of controlled, not physically, not even financially, but by their ideas that they cannot themselves think about. They were just, you know, fed these ideas by the private sector. And this, this correlation exists in several Ukrainian, several sectors of Ukrainian economy. When we think about, you know, social perspectives, they just step back and, well, wait for somebody else to answer these questions or maybe just put them aside or under the rug or somewhere. Is the reason and, for that the, the, the financial resources or what is the reason for that? So thinking about, we have this defunded, defunded private, uh, defunded public entities that um, stop thinking forward and just rely on this day-to-day -day work or day-to-day -day provision of answers or services to you know politicians or the parliament or the cabinet ministers. They don't come up with these ideas because they don't feel themselves secure and being able to put forward these ideas. And why is that? I think it depends on different levels. Um, well, I cannot say I have an answer, but this is something that I've been facing, that you engage with people who have very low ambitions and expectations about the future. And it's very hard um, when you have such a huge problem of destruction and displacement, um, because you have to think big. Otherwise, it just doesn't work together at all. Right. What's your, your personal hope for the recovery of Ukrainian cities? Well, paradoxically, I think one of the things that happened is is indeed decolonization of consciousness um, in a lot of ways because um, maybe on, it doesn't have immediate effects on the physical reality of how people care about the city or how they engage in you know local politics, but um, they are definitely no longer captured by some kind of um, idea that there will be some. Um, public entity providing something and things will be just automatically better. I think there is a lot of a lot of things that people started to think about before the war, but also are now enshrined in this voluntary activity on all fronts where people just do things themselves. So there are some expectations on behalf of the local authorities, but people actually engage. So people do things that nobody asked them to do and they won't stop. I mean, they won't stop if the municipal authority says, well, you shouldn't, maybe they will say, shut up. We are providing services. We are doing the right thing, so on, so on. So in a lot of places, it's the no longer, I mean, the authorities are just sitting and listening to, to civil society because civil society has much better capacity and understanding of what has to be done. And it's kind of municipal civil society is jumping over the municipal authorities and talking with donors or talking with um, state entities or, or something. So I think this is a quite an interesting condition that we haven't seen, you know, in Europe. I, I don't know what kind of society had this mobilization of resources in the last decades. Um, more related to kind of spatial planning issues is my concern that we have a huge trouble translating um, quality standards of living into things that matter in spatial planning. And this is, yeah, this is, this is, this is a complicated task in, in every city. And what the research says um, in very simple words is that, well, you need to have a very strong hold of governmental capacity to hold, um, you know, those land consumption back. And if you do, land consumption is much lower and the 
density of construction is much higher. And thus we could correlate that with the quality of public service provision, transport, and so on. And I think this thinking is not yet in Ukraine at all right now. There has to be a lot of effort done on behalf of different European also um, institutions to promote the agenda that we actually need to think from the perspective of ecological um, system, you know, within within the within the country. How do we keep land open? How do we keep it natural? How we don't consume much more land? Because in Ukraine, it's very easy to compare the data before the war and after the war. What has happened also on on the geographical level. I think something like uh, the whole territory of Belgium in Ukraine is now mined. So uh, it's either mined and shelled or shelled and mined or has some other hazards and mined. And uh, it's basically unusable. Um, so imagine you just cut off Belgium out of European map. It's a bit too much, I think, to handle for just one jump. And it happened in Ukraine in a year. So we lost uh, huge territories. It's 27 to 30% of land that is mined and it has to be cleared somehow. And they, are, they clean it, but it's a very slow process. And also uh, sometimes you cannot really clean it because the quality of soil just is not, after even after you clean it up, it's not really usable. It's, it's degraded too much or it's, it's just you know filled with metal or scrap or some kind of fumes from the shells and, and other things or oil from tanks. So it's it's basically a barren wasteland. And uh, Ukraine was a, this kind of a breadbasket feeding 400 million people in the world. But then the pressure for agriculture does not just, you know, go away. It's It just moves its need for land resources to the western parts of Ukraine where there were no hostilities. And now the pressure for land use is even accelerating. And we're not even touching on the points such as, you know, wind farms, uh, solar energy uh, production, and so on and so on. So the land consumption perspective in Ukraine is huge. It can just, you know, every day it can just be growing exponentially from where we are now. It's because the economic activity is low right now and there are a lot of issues about how you invest. But as soon as investment is there and we don't have real controls in place, um, you know, market always finds a way how to go around some of the more or less lousy legislation that is there. So this is a crucial problem for the recovery, about how we think about Ukraine as an ecosystem and the land use in the country. And this is why I'm skeptical about this kind of a um, localized approach, because on the local level, you don't see these numbers adding up. You see small, you know, kind of a, um, you just a small glimpse on the bigger picture which where the public authorities on well, national level and regional level really have to think about. So I would I would like to pick up on your your first point on the self-organization of people of communities in cities and the resilience they show during during the um, times of war. I find it very fascinating that you described that People living in cities or organizations, I think, are they are they organized somehow? Is it an are they NGOs or is it just people who who come together for for a, a shared purpose? It's very easy to start up an NGO in Ukraine, yeah. um, and somehow NGOs cover seventy to eighty percent of all local activities. So it's somehow mediated by an NGO because it, as soon as you have a legal structure, then you can send out official 
letters, you can receive those official letters, you can participate on behalf of your NGO. So it, it kind of levels up your status, you know, maybe not that much, but still you, you have a much more, uh, many more opportunities to engage in local politics. And uh, you also, which is I think crucially important, then you kind of negotiate with international partners on behalf of the so-called organization or institution, even there are five people there, uh, they will never know, never know in a sense, but they know that they're engaging with a legal entity, you know, and that, that, that proves a lot of things that are possible now. And, you know, I mean, NGOs are, well, I don't know the, about the financial flows uh, overall, but I think uh, the capacity of NGOs to receive and spend money is, is, is getting better and better. And this capacity is assisting local municipalities into providing other services or thinking even that they don't themselves are not unable to provide. Do you think that this is something that uh, these NGOs or these local, let's say, purposefully formed groups of people will have a bigger uh, role to play um, after the war and in, in the governance system after the war? Well, that's a good question because um, it's really hard to predict. <laughs> um, and also, I don't have enough data to understand or maybe to compare the pre-war conditions and the post-war conditions. There is some research done on the appreciation of local NGOs and trust to local NGOs. And I think it, it, it's kept much higher than trust to the local authorities so people trust those ngos even though they don't elect them they don't kind of uh, they are unable to make them accountable really they really trust those ngos because so to me to me it sounds like you you mobilize uh, or you're you fo forced um society or the ukrainian society has to show a certain resilience in this in these times right and then you uh they come together and bring these resources, mobilize their ideas and um, and also, yeah, resources, financial or other, other resources together. It would be, you know, very interesting to see how you can use that after the war and also to, to exactly what you mentioned before, to, to um, build upon, upon this, this mobilization for reimagining cities. Mm, well, here I might a bit uh, divert from from your line of thinking because I think for proper, um, well, cities are, as we know, are getting more and more complex uh, day by day because of the involvement of different stakeholders, you know, complicated networks of infrastructure, digital institutions of whatever public, private authorities. So the things are just getting more complicated. And I think NGOs have their own limit of how far they can. So I believe the, the deprofessionalization um, of the idea of city management is a good and a bad thing. So it is good because it opens up people to more thinking about how do we want to live together on this you know, small world we have, uh, but it also depreciates depreciates the quality of professional education because you can no longer represent to have any credible condition of knowledge or information or uh, just basically experience from your work that other people have to rely on. Well, because they haven't done that, they don't know that. They just you know jump up with their ideas, learn from somebody across the street or in the internet, and then they say, "Well, we should do that." Whether that's a good use of public money, whether that's a long-term investment, well, I think that's a... I think it might be 
it might not be that you that you hand out the decision to somebody who's not an expert, but it's it's yeah, about valuing the the knowledge becomes, and the everything. It becomes a conflict. Yeah. I would say that you're 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 correct, and that's that's a good point. But I'm always afraid. Sorry, I just meant I just meant brain. bringing in these voices and this uh, um, this this mobilization or this perspective into um, co-creating approaches for. Uh, city making really you know it's it's like at the end of the day you 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 need to have a leadership which takes the decisions and you need to have a, a decision laid out by experts but also by maybe not not uh disciplinary experts but everyday life experts right so and it's bringing these voices together to maybe reimagine a future for cities this is an interesting question again. Thank you for it. Because what I also felt from my studies um, and engaging with discussions about municipal management in other capitals or in other cities in Europe, so a lot of these processes were happening um, in different European cities in different speeds. Uh, but thinking about the Ukrainian context, it is quite different uh, in a sense that while those things have been brought on the table, um, you also have a decrease or maybe you didn't have any increase of quality or the capacity of local municipality. So municipality now is unable neither to handle properly the, well, engagement and co-creation, nor their basic institutional work that they have to do. And they're now a turn between those two ideas because they have to respond to all of the ideas of deliberative democracy and everyday engagement and to do this complex technocratic stuff they have to do and they're not really competent in neither of those mm -hmm. and this brings to me the table what is the priority or how do you invest uh, in the capacity on the local level for those people to be able to plan forward and to be open i found this a conflict talking with a lot of european professionals they they highly express the need to have more public engagement have to take on the initiatives that already exist there and just enhance them not to push anything but then it is a good it is a good plan but for different conditions i think and those conditions have to be taken into account when thinking about the longer term goals how do you balance the you know the, this kind of a technical and conceptual needs of the city with this new paradigms of management of you know local management of things and how do you engage people in that Alexander, with with so much destruction and uh, in in Ukraine, and you described how much land has been destroyed and uh, is is polluted also for the war, uh, from the war. How and we discussed a lot of uh, yeah details, regulations, governance issues around that. Wouldn't you say that the priority should be to build housing and infrastructure on a very rapid pace? To focus on that instead of uh, let's say the nice to haves around that. Well, that's that's a very good question um, because what it leads to is a dichotomy, which I think is a bit of unproductive. And I would rather a bit of reframe the question about how do we learn by doing things? How do we um, from the start? How do we not delay uh, the process? But how do we start the process the way that it brings builds um a system of knowledge or builds this kind of a learning capacity from from within the project by project thinking 
towards a planning perspective or towards the perspective of how do we kind of organize things together on a level of uh, municipal plan or general plan or you know uh, regional plan um myself i'm for planning you know there, there is some there is some uh, argument you know theory saves all i think plan saves all um so plan do save a lot of things um but with the given conditions it is more about um how do we make those plans work and at the given moment i don't think we know um how to make those plans work so we had a lot of plans in the country uh, we were huge plan-producing countries since the Soviet Union. Most of those plans were never realized to any significant extent. And how do we, how do we learn? Maybe without a plan, uh, how do we systematize those projects? How do we systematize that thinking towards the plan we need? And I think this is this is this is maybe a better kind of way of trying to push things together. Um, integrated urban development, so to say, which is uh, well a German term, but I think it it has a chance of revival in these conditions by becoming more informal, but becoming a, a way of doing, not a way of planning, and then feeding up to those people who actually you know, sit in the planning seat and then they see, well, this is the way things work and we should plan as things work and not to plan for the things that we would like them to work. And for rebuilding Ukrainian cities, if you if you if we go in that in that line of thinking, what would be the next practical steps to rebuild? Um, cities, from your perspective, from your from your work, but also feel free to be very personal. I think your opinion. Well, I say it's kind of a vision for the social city. <laughs> this is also on the level of country, but related to our podcast, I think it's more interesting to think about what is the social city that provides for people who live there, and it's it's about all of those conditions. So it's about how do we, at the same moment, as planners, as people who think further. Take into account healthcare. How do we take into account everyday use of space? How do we take into account mobility? How do we take into account access to decent housing? How do we take into account greenery? Um, how do we take into account um, new jobs and uh, well, work areas and access to those uh, work areas? So, in a sense, from this fragmentation that we were facing earlier, you know, designing solutions for a very small kind of you know, planned areas, whatever the way it was there, you know, just, just putting buildings together. It is about a bit of going back and understanding that what's behind, you know, physical plans or legal plans is our internal understanding of how do we think these cities should look like. And it's especially relevant for cities that have been heavily damaged, such as Kharkiv or Mykolaiv, um, because they have to prove something to the world after the war is over that their place is worth living, right? Because I don't think you can rebuild a city that it just works for the few. It won't help anybody to get back there and it will be a dysfunctional economy, you know, constantly shrinking system that relies on um, defunct Soviet infrastructure, um, maybe with a few pedestrian central streets. So it's um, it's about actually not this investment you know as an extra investment for social facilities but as investment into people who would love to work and live there and this thinking is is what i haven't seen in ukraine that much and i believe this is the kind of a financial thinking that was burdened by constant lack of funds 
But with the opportunity of a very clever use of um, the recovery funds that we think are going to come, we should actually put this kind of a social before every other word. So if we are talking about infrastructure, it has to have its social component there. It has to have housing, it has to have its social, social component there. And to be competitive, it's not about being economically competitive, it's about first being socially competitive and then economy can repay for itself. And it's what happened in a lot of cities in, in, in the world. And how would you say, how would you say, I think in the beginning you, you mentioned how, how, how to put it, but it was, uh, it was like uh, the perspective of uh, European researchers and policymakers on European, um, on Ukrainian cities should shift and there should be more knowledge. If I interpret you correctly, more knowledge build up in Western Europe uh, or about yeah. uh, uh, urbanism and other things in, in Ukraine. Well, I can't say, you know, you just measure it by the size, but Kyiv is the fifth biggest city in Europe. Um, so it has to have at least some appeal to trying to understand how big cities work and how they impact global global economy. Um, but what I think we started to discuss before uh, this the recording is that, well, um, coming from, I don't know, Danish, Scottish, Spanish background, people considered Ukraine, well, something being out of their scope of interest, um, maybe automatically because it's not really belonging to any area of research they've been looking at. And I think this leads to a specific condition where Ukraine... Um, well, it's confined, as I, as I said, to this uh, periphery. So although it's the biggest country by area in Europe and uh, it provides the most, um, well, a lot of resources, corn, we are talking about wheat, we're talking about sunflower oil, a lot of products that Europe actually imports from Ukraine and is heavily dependent on some of those things. How do we make Ukraine visible productively for international academia? Because uh, trying to launch any international projects of relevance and value production in science, how do you make Ukraine relatively interesting for those points? I think it's by making Ukraine legible on the map so that people do not start those conversations with the Uh, excuses that they don't know anything about Ukraine. So, yeah, you can tell us something, but, well, this is just another interesting point we can learn about, but not really a necessary one. I think knowing about Ukraine is crucial, is a part of a basic um, understanding, at least in the realm of European studies. You have to be very well aware of how Ukraine functions as a society. And if you're an urbanist, you have to know at least some of the understanding, have to some, some understanding about how Ukrainian municipalities, cities and um, well, are growing and are changing. Because that would bring, on the one hand, much more perspective to different issues discussed in Europe, the transfer of policies, the thinking about how those policies land up, how do we consume land, how do we grow, also how do we work with cities that are experiencing decline. There is a lot of areas that Ukraine can be uh, part of this research uh, engagement on international academic level, but it is not as people consider it being, you know, and case in itself, not really reproducible, not really comparable. And I think starting to make Ukraine visible on the basic level, to be able to engage with people, at least that Ukraine is something not out of their scope of thinking, but a part of the normal conversations, part of the general agenda of research.
is very important to me. And this is one of the things that I wanted to argue here. Right. Thank you so much, Alexander. I would, um, since you have so many, you you have different hats. So I see you wearing different hats. You have you're you're active in an NGO sector. You also you're a, a researcher and academic yourself, but you also work with municipalities. If you would suggest, let's say, three things to anybody who wants to reimagining cities or or change anything in their uh, immediate urban environment, uh, what would these three suggestions be? From working in the municipality, I learned um, that to actually produce change, you have to work very hard. And in a sense, this working hard is not a not a joke, uh, not a maybe some kind of a, a head-on idea, but this is a reality. So if you want to see things changing in a, on a local level, you have to be ready for a marathon or for a very long run, because there are a lot of institutions, there are a lot of people with different backgrounds engaged in this decision-making and you can change things, but you have to be sure that you're committed to this and that you're ready to face difficulties and ready to go on with some things being unchanged for years, I, I imagine. Um, from being an NGO, I learned that NGOs are very um, fancy for thinking about cities, are very interesting for young researchers or um, people who are engaged in the society uh, on different levels, but their influence is very limited. Um, and if you are looking towards making things different, um, well, on a bigger scale, it might be better that you think about how do I convert my knowledge from an NGO to be relevant for policymakers and maybe to become a policymaker yourself. And these things uh, combined, I imagine, are, are both relevant for people who work in the municipality and who start often to be overpressed with their everyday work and they don't see you know, an ending of this. Um, but they can make a change and I've seen it happening, but they have to be, they have to keep the fire going. Uh, and people who don't see the change happening in NGOs and the society is still being the same or the city is functioning the same way they did previously, they have to realize that, you know, past dependencies are very strong and you have to leverage in a very specific area to produce a change. And it's not an easy thing to do, but it's still possible. Alexander, thank you so much for your time. Um... Thank you for giving me and us really an insight into Ukrainian urbanism um, before and uh, during and after the war. Uh, I would love to to meet you at some point, ideally in Ukraine after the war. Yeah, all the best to you, to your family and uh, your colleagues. And I hope we stay in touch. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Johannes. It was a pleasure. That was all for this week's show. Uh, if you like the content, I would be happy if you subscribe to the channel or uh, rate the show or send me an email at johannes at anthropocene.cities. Cities Reimagined will take a short break over the Christmas holidays and we'll be back in January with new episodes. And we will finish off season one and then decide if we go into a second season and how that should look like. Thanks for listening and I hope to catch you soon.
Thank you.